A big welcome to our More Foundation pod venture. This is our space where we will hear the life stories, insights and wisdom from members of our thriving community. You will get the opportunity to learn from their life experience and hear the moments in life that have helped shape them. Mo is a growing global community of change makers and builders. We provide lifelong learning support to our community, enabling them to make a positive change and impact in our world. To find out more about Mo Foundation, please visit our website www.mofoundation.com or find us on social media. We look forward to connecting and learning about you. In the meantime, enjoy the latest adventure okay so welcome everyone to the you know the first of the 2022 pod ventures well the first one that i'm recording obviously you would have just heard the wonderful tony phillips um for those that of you are listening in and i'm really pleased that today we've got the wonderful jeffrey with us so jeffrey welcome to the mo pod venture thank you darren it's always lovely to be called wonderful <laughs> it's really great to see you, Jeffrey, and it's great to hear you've just had a, a fabulous festive break and also a, an, another birthday. Unlike me, you're probably not nearing 50. My next one's 50, which is unbelievable. Gosh, okay. I didn't know that. End, end of this year. So, yeah, so I'm slightly dreading that one, Jeffrey. But anyway, all will be well. As you know, on these, what we love to do is kind of get under the skin and find out a bit about someone and, um, you know, where they came from and their background and then, you know, how they've developed their career, their professional life and life in general. And then into, you know, what does the future hold for them? And you're somebody that's been instrumental, as you know, in Mo Foundation from the very beginning before Mo even was alive, which we'll get into, I'm sure. So let's start off with Jeffrey. Um, obviously born and raised in London, but why don't you share some of those early experiences with us? Because I think those would be really interesting when we get into some of the wider conversations about diversity and inclusion and equity and things like that, that I know is something that you're really passionate about. And, you know, you've been a great voice and support to people through the last couple of years that have been tricky for some people and Mm. have been quite tricky, you know, in the world. So um, anyway, let's start with you. So Jeffrey, I know last time that we did this recording, I said to you, where are you from? And you said London. You were just laughing about that. <laughs> let's, let's go a little bit more beyond London. So tell us about your, you know, your early life. What was your early life like? And where were you in the world? Yeah, so um, you're actually partly right, Darren. Born London and initially raised in Ghana. So born in London, East London. And I think when I was one years old, my mum sent me to Ghana just sort of things going on with her at the time and getting herself on her feet and then um yeah I was there till I was about five years old and then I I came to England so I would say my first conscious experience of the world was in Ghana and I feel as though that's something that stuck with me you know I remember coming to a different country and a new way of life but I think the Ghanaian culture is still very much within me so when people say to me where are you from I say I'm Ghanaian because that's what I really sort of resonate with and that's where I first learned about the world. One of the things I love about, you know, doing these sort of interviews with people that I've known for a long time, there's always stuff that you just don't know. So I didn't I didn't know that. We've never had that conversation that actually you'd spent, you know, the first early part of your life there. So what was that experience like? Let's start there then. Yeah, so so I have three, maximum four memories of Ghana. Um so I was with my grandma and my older cousin at the time. And I went to nursery there. And one of my experiences um, of nursery was we had to write the numbers one, two, and three on the board. And it's like everyone would take it in turns. So we would all go up and write one, then you sit down. Then you go up and you write two, then you sit down. And I actually remember being in a seat and I don't remember that, I, I don't necessarily know that I knew what was happening, but I knew what I had to do. So I obviously saw everyone writing one, then I'll do it when it came to me. Then people wrote two. And basically, if you couldn't write it, you had to put out your hand and the teacher would cane you. So the teacher had a cane in. <laughs> the teacher had a cane in, I think it was a woman, it was a woman, had a cane in her hand. And you just put out your hand and she'll, she'll hit you. And I remember sort of with the number two, a few people were struggling. So some people got caned. And I remember just feeling so scared going up and actually writing it. I actually remember shaking as I did the sort of first curve and then I just made a two and then I wasn't caned. But when it came to three, everyone got caned. And all you had to do was literally the same kind of curve twice, but no one could do it. And 
I don't know. It's probably psychological. Like I just saw all the people who went before me getting caned, and I thought, oh no, this is it. And I went up, tried my best, did the first kind of loop, second loop couldn't do it, and I got my cane. So that's one memory that sticks with me. Another memory that sticks with me. I hope you wouldn't see it now, but when I was younger, I had a very big head, and um, for some reason, <laughs> um, my grandma's landing had some railings, and I managed to put my head in, but I couldn't get it out. And I remember, <laughs> I remember being there for a while, crying and just panicking that my life was over. And I think they had to like get something to bend, bend the railings. So that's my second memory. And I think my third memory was again I was in it might have been nursery or primary school, and I fell down and I um, yeah just had a big gash on my knee. So those are my early memories of life in Ghana. Yeah, and and I think you just said earlier, just before we came, you know, onto the recording, I think it was a five, wasn't it? You were saying you transitioned back to the UK. But before we get to that, I mean, because I say I'm intrigued with this now because I didn't know that part of your life story, which is incredible. So, do you still have close links? Obviously, you've still got family in Ghana, but have you? Do you go back there, and do you go back to the country at all? Have you been back? So the last time I went back was 2006. And when I went back, there were quite a few, myself and a few friends. So I went out with my family and a few of my friends who were also from Ghana went out with their family. And one of my friends had a bit of a negative experience there, which really impacted me. So my family went back a couple of times and then I just didn't because of my association. But a few years later, I sort of got over that. And yeah, and then I I didn't go back to Ghana because by that time I was older and there was much more or many more places in the world to explore mm-hmm. so where where i've had traveling opportunities i've always tried to explore other countries now i'm married my wife is caribbean and chinese so yeah i want to sort of take her back to ghana and yeah you know now ghana is the place to be especially around christmas and you know i've only ever really been to tanzania in in the continent of africa you know and it was very much sort of a village where i went to obviously i went into dar es salaam i think it is where we flew into that which is more of a sort of city were you in like a city or were you in a village environment can you remember that far back yeah it would have been the city i was in accra at the time yeah and the reason i was asking that question because then you went from ghana and you shipped over to East London. To East London, yeah. So what was, can you, I mean, I know it was a long, long time ago and you're only tiny, but can you sort of remember those those first steps back into the UK? Yeah, I I remember one memory that sticks out to me is I saw white people. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was different. So, you know, I can't say, I can't remember if I'd seen white people before or not, but um, I just remember coming to England and seeing a stark difference in in the population and yeah seeing seeing lots of white people and it's like wow what's this is you know it's a whole new world and I also remember I was quite young so I didn't necessarily understand the the moves and the transitions so I didn't know that I wasn't living with my mum so I came and then I met my mum and she was just a woman and then I think after you know um, some people brought me over then she took me home and then, yeah, somehow it clicked that, oh, this is your mum. But it would have been time later. So, yeah, I was just too young to to be aware of what was going on. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. Sort of I had a different experience to you because I grew up in a sort of very village focused place in Kent. And, and there were only a few families from different ethnic backgrounds. So it was, you know, I had the other. I was surrounded by white kids. And then, you know, there were kids of colour and kids from different um, you know, Asia and all sorts of different places as I got into senior school. So I, I kind of, I know what that experience is like when you start seeing people that are different to you, because I grew up in a tiny village, uh, you know, um, so it must have been really interesting to sort of go from being there and then bang, you're in London. And yeah, I mean, it's more cosmopolitan than most places in the whole of the UK. But yeah, that must have been a very strange experience. Hmm. So what were your, so what were your early school years like then? Oh, um, early school years. I think I just got by, you know. I think when when you get into the juniors and you get into year three, that's where I really remember it from. And I remember because I had a special teacher called Miss Lankford. I'm not sure if he was quite year three or year four, but um, I just remember him having a huge impact on my life and him being the reason why I enjoyed school and I engaged in school. So I think essentially before that, I was just in school and would talk and get in little bits of trouble, etc. You know, I wouldn't say I was a naughty kid, especially as I would get in a lot of trouble when I got home, but I did get in some trouble at school, in primary school. And yeah, Mr. Langford changed all of that. 
our connection first started from football. So I was a very gifted football player at the time and he was the football coach. And I think that's just really how we built our bond. And, you know, I'm not sure this would be permissible nowadays, but um, it was it was a Catholic school as well. So when you were in year three, you could be an altar server. And that's something I did on the Sundays. And um, Mr. Lankford used to play the organ. So I would go to the church on the Sunday early because he was playing the organ, he would be there. And I remember one day, <laughs> and this is the kind of Ghanaian and English mix and divide. One day he was talking about an English breakfast and he said, you know, I'll take you for an English breakfast. And I thought, okay. But, you know, I have breakfast at home every day. <laughs> and then, yeah, he said, you know, let's say next Sunday we're going to go for an English breakfast. So I went with him. Then we went to a cafe, which was strange for me. And then the English breakfast came and it was like chips, beans, sausages. And, <laughs> and I was like, I thought we we're going to have breakfast. This, this is lunch. You know, he's like, this is English breakfast. I was like, what? English people have like chips and stuff for breakfast. So that was my first English breakfast, which was a nice and new experience for me because breakfast at home was cereal. So, yeah, you know, he was instrumental and just in sort of supporting me with my behavior as well, because I think because we had the bond we did and he was a teacher at the primary school, so lots of connections. Yeah, I was just always on my best behavior to please him. Yeah. And I know from uh, sort of various different conversations we've had, but also your movement conference talk mm. that you did for us a couple of years ago now, you know, like the road to Damascus, there's a pathway, isn't there? There's the, I take this route or I take this route. And I think at certain points in your life, there's been those forks in the road, haven't there? And you've, yeah. by the sounds of it, you've found the better path or the right path for you. What was that like? You know, what was it like growing up in an environment where, you know, you could see people that were going down a path that would lead them into a certain direction, which I know has been instrumental in shaping the way you want to support people in prison, which you've mm. done incredible work in. So what was some of your experiences that you want to share where you kind of got to that fork in your own life and you went, actually, I'm going to make this decision rather than this decision? Yeah. So, you know, what I should say is, you know, I was on my best behaviour at school to please Mr. Lankford, but outside of school, even in primary school, I had negative experiences. And I think it was just really the environment I grew up in and the people I was around and associated with. So the other people I was involved in, the other people in my area were just involved in things sort of like petty crime. And that's really how my upbringing started. And it's, it's a mixture of lots of things. You know, um, growing up, you hear particular narratives at home, at least I did. And one of them was, you know, I haven't got money, haven't got money. That's what my mum would say. And I don't know if that was literal or not. You know, a lot of people who grew up sort of in my circumstances felt the same. But obviously that registered to my mum hasn't got money. And similarly, some of my friends. So where we would go outside just to play, some of the kids might have money to go to the shop. We didn't have money. So what do we do if we need something from the shop? We steal it. Mm. So we just started with things like that. You know, I had another friend called Jeffrey at the time, and we were two of the youngest amongst a group of older people. So we were in primary school. Some of them were in secondary school. And I suppose we were like the two younger brothers or the two youngers and we were sort of competing for status so we would dare each other to do stuff which would essentially involve crime or fighting or robbery stuff like that and you know whoever was boldest and could do the biggest or the worst thing would get more props and that continued as I got older I just I suppose fell into that lifestyle more and wanting to live a particular type of lifestyle or have things such as materials, uh, trainers and clothes, just needed to really find ways to make money. And, you know, sometimes stealing wasn't always possible to maybe get some of the stuff like I actually need the physical cash. So I had to then find creative ways of making money. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. And I remember one of the things, you know, we've recorded this a few times, this podcast to get it right. And I remember one of the stories you shared last time that I wanted to bring again was the moment when I think you saw the back of a bus and it talked about the bus drivers, mm. how much they earned. Do you, do you want to share that story again? Because it really struck me. Yeah, so that's really moving on in my life. And I more or less continued on that trajectory. And what happened is I was born in East London and raised in East London when I came back from Ghana and shortly after moved to South London. Then I'd moved back to East London. And why that's relevant is that gave me breaks in my life. So as I say, from primary school, I was associating with some people who were leading me down a particular path. Unfortunately, I moved to East London. So, you know, it was just too much to associate with them in South London. And 
essentially some of them got deported because they weren't originally from here. Some are doing life in prison and some are in and out of prison. But that group, nobody's doing well. So I really see that as a saving grace for me. But then I find myself in East London and in some ways living a similar type of life. But I got to university is, is where I'm going with this. And as I got to university, I was the only one of my friends who was at university. So then university became a very lonely place for me and a mixture of emotions. But I just thought this life isn't for me. The legitimate life isn't for me. University life isn't for me. Professional life isn't for me because those whom I've grown up with aren't here. And, you know, the people who are here, I don't feel as though we gel or we connect. So I was going to drop out of university and I had sort of decided, and, you know, I'm speaking about it calm now, but at the time it was, it was quite an emotional time for me. So there was lots of anger and emotions and just about life and some of the things that happened in my life up until that point. So I decided that I'm just going to pack it all in and I'm just going to go into a life of crime. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. Perhaps I might go to prison, perhaps I might die, but just whatever, I don't care anymore. And in that process, I also saw a bus go past, a London red bus, and it said bus drivers get 24k a year. And I thought, oh my goodness, like, that's potentially my lucky break. You know, I never saw myself earning anywhere near 24k a year because how I had grown up and some of the people around me, all the adults and people's parents worked by the hour. You know, I didn't do the maths, but you probably have to work quite a number of hours to be able to earn a salary of 24K. And I thought, if I could just get my driver's license and drive a bus, I could earn 24K. And in that, at that time, you know, I was at university, I thought that would be it. That's, that's more than I ever imagined I could get. And then I was still resigned to just the, the life I said I was going to choose. So I thought, if I work full time, then I can do some other stuff on the side and maybe even have more money than 24K a year. And, you know, my, my goal was never to be rich. It was just to have what I saw as a normal life. So I wanted to be able to go on a holiday and, you know, do regular things, go to restaurants and stuff, things that I didn't necessarily feel as though I'd be able to do just because of how I kind of saw myself and my upbringing and circumstances. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know that at university, the, um, there was another group of people that really were formative for you, weren't they? And that was the church. So how did, how did that come about, Jeffrey? Yeah, there's so many versions of that story, not versions, but so many directions I can take it. But it was, again, at that same time. And essentially what happened is there were two key periods at university. The first term when I was going to drop out and I had the thoughts and experiences I just described to you. And what was happening at the same time is I was meeting people. Now, the way I was meeting people is I lived in a block of flats at university on campus and my room was just on the ground floor. And I knew quite a few people at university. So I, I wouldn't say I had friends as such because I didn't feel as though I could call these people and hang out with them. But I suppose part of my personality is I had a lot of acquaintances and I knew people. And all of a sudden around this time, Whenever someone would, let's say, come to my flat to see someone else, they might just shout at me and, you know, come into my room and we'll talk for a little bit. And this happened with probably about four to five different groups of people. And we would be having a regular conversation, then God would come up and, you know, they would say they're Christians and essentially tell me how their life is going well. And at that time, I thought, well, my life isn't going well. So let me give this a try. And I did that for my first year and I found a group of friends and I was hanging out with them and it really gave me a better first year experience. Then, of course, I didn't drop out of university. Things started to get better for me. Then the last week of university, you know, it was just a weird turn of events that happened. But I found myself alone and isolated and just very angry. And then I just had the reflection that, look what's happened. You know, I, I met all of these people who told me their life was going amazing. But I, I don't feel as though I've got that same story. And because of my mindset beforehand, I had lots of plans and ideas about what I wanted to do when I got to university. None of them positive, but it was all around partying and doing a lot of, let's say, crazy stuff. And I felt as though I hadn't done that because I'd been with all these people, this new group of people. So I was quite angry. And what I can say is there was a turn of events, which I would describe as a divine intervention. And what that really led to was me meeting someone. So a girl ended up in my room by accident. And the 
that might probably sound weird on a podcast. So, so what I should say is spontaneously on that particular day where I was isolated, it ended up being the case where I probably then had about seven, maybe 17 is a lot, but maybe about 12 people in my room. And this was spontaneous. So someone ended up in my room, then someone else came, then someone else came. Then when I've got, let's say, four or five people in my room, then those four or five people are getting phone calls from other people. Because it's the last week of university, everyone's just really around and having fun. So the number just kept on growing and growing and growing. Then there were two girls who came to my university to visit. So they weren't students there and they were looking for someone. And they called someone in my room and said, is I think is Emmanuel there? And the person was playing the PlayStation at the time, so he wasn't really concentrating. And he's like, yeah, yeah, Emmanuel's here. So then the girls came looking for Emmanuel, but Emmanuel wasn't here. And then the person who brought the girls obviously saw all the guys in my room because they were just guys in my room and he wanted to stay. Then he's like, can these girls stay? So I said, yeah, they can. If I fast forward, everyone more or less left at the same time. Then it was me and a friend just left in my room. Then the two girls came back and said, oh, you know, we're just visiting the university. Is there anything going on tomorrow that we can attend or come to? And I said, oh, one of my friends is having a barbecue, so I'll invite you. So then we exchanged numbers. Then one of the girls saw the pizza boxes in my room. So she said, oh, let me just clean these up. So I showed her to the kitchen. We ended up talking. And then again, the conversation turned to about God. So that's how I met the girl. Then university finished. And then about two to three weeks later, she sent me a text. I hadn't spoken to her. She sent me a text and said, call me. Um, I just want to speak to you about a dream I had. And I thought, okay, that's a bit weird. And then basically in the dream, I was sitting down with her and I basically told her about my whole life. So she knew about my life, like actual events going on in my life and thoughts that I was thinking, but I hadn't voiced or said to anyone. And she said, all of these things came to her in a dream. So that was quite weird. And I thought, okay. And basically things like that continued to happen. Then I kept on saying to her, like, how is this happening? Why is this happening? And she was like, well, I'm a Christian and I believe in God and God speaks to me. And I was like, you know, what do you mean God speaks to you? How can, how can God speak? And we kind of went through all of, all of those conversations and essentially it kept on happening, but in a really sort of divine way. When I say it kept on happening, it probably happened about three times, three different episodes where she would tell me things about my life, but I didn't know her. We didn't know mutual people. So there was no way for her to know this information. Then on one particular occasion, because of the things that had been happening, I was starting to take it a little bit seriously. And I thought, okay, let me read the Bible and let me pray. So I read the Bible and then I thought, I'm going to pray. And then in the prayer, I asked God the question and I wanted an answer. And for some reason, I was sitting down at a desk and my head was just down on the desk as I was praying. So as soon as I said, amen, I lifted up my head and then she called me like just at that moment. So then I picked up the phone and she said, where's your Bible? And I said, oh, it's right in front of me. I actually just finished reading it and praying. Then she told me to turn to a scripture, which I did. And she said, read it. And I was like, okay. So I read it. And then she just said, I just heard God say, I should call you and give you that scripture. And then after I read it again, I was like, that's the direct answer to a prayer. I literally just said, amen. Like, I didn't even have time to like think or have a drink of water. I just prayed. And this is a direct answer. So then... I began to take it seriously. Then when she told me her backstory about why she came to my university, she just said one Sunday she was at church and she just felt God say she should come to my university and take her other friend with her. And then there's a whole backstory about how they ended up in my room and it was to do with the other friend and something that had happened. So then I began to just see all of this as a sign. And it was like, you know what? God is real. And he's actually sent a messenger to me. You know, he sent this this girl who's my age to give me a message and she's been consistent in giving me the message. And he's also shown up for me personally. So then it was just about, okay, now what's next in my life? So that's kind of my start and my turning point in life. Yeah, absolutely. And it must have, you know, when you, you sort of listen to the backstory and, and sort of your psychology and mindset at that point, that the sort of fear that was running the show and the, anger and angst and the you know generally pissed off with how life was it must have been really you know wholesome and wonderful to actually find something that that kind of resonated for you and and it felt like there was some sort of loving sense out there you know that would support you that must have been 
so I know it's become so instrumental in your life. You know, that's yeah. why I wanted to kind of talk about it because you're so open about it, which is wonderful. Talk about your your faith and your spirituality. So that must have been huge for you at that moment in your life. Yeah, um, you know, I can't understate it. You know, I've just explained it quickly because it's a podcast and sometimes when I've explained the story, I, I speak forever just telling people the ins and outs and I didn't want to do that on this podcast. But I cannot describe how much it meant for me at the time. And, you, ha- you know, it's... It's almost like a divine intervention. It's like I was at a certain point in my life where I was going to give up and I was serious about it, 100% serious. And then all of a sudden, my world is changing in a very instrumental way, as in the different times she came to me and she gave me direct messages. They were all pertinent times, as in it was at the right time. And for me, there's no explanation. There's no other way it could have happened apart from God. You know, it's like, actually, someone's eyes are really, really upon me. And someone's calling me and saying, actually, you've got a purpose. So so one of the things about, let's say, people in the ministry, people in the Christian ministry, is they say they got a calling from God. So, you know, they didn't just wake up and say, I'm going to lead a church, for example. They feel called from God. And I've spoken to various people in various ministries who've described their calling for me. And that's what I can say. I had my divine intervention and my calling. And that's what led me into my current career path. That's what led me into coaching and where I am now. And that's essentially why I take my life so seriously, because... I see it's a calling from God and I know that I was going down the wrong path like I had made my decision. Mm. Yeah, I know, incredible. And sort of to bring it sort of into the the right timescale, you and I met 2009-10, didn't we? Yeah. So you, at the end of your, towards the end of your university, you were doing some work with Kids Company and I'd, I'd happened across Kids Company before, you know, we'd formed Mo and, um, and we set up this thing called Kids Co Pioneers and we took a whole bunch of wonderful young people from London down to a farm in Devon. And, and you were one of the lead facilitators on that. And, um, you know, you were part of that team along with Daniela and others. Um, so why don't you sort of share your experience of that when, when we first met and the Kids Co experience? Because, you know, that really did shape what became and what has become the Mo community and Mo Foundation. At the time then, it was Ministry of Entrepreneurship. Mm. But now it's increasingly known as Mo and, and me, others and everyone. And it's got all sorts of different sort of derivatives, really, as an organisation. Because it's now, you know, it's 10 years. It's 10 years old this January, which is incredible. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah. Wow. But you and I met a couple of years before that, you know. So why don't you share what your experience saw was? Because I think from our previous conversations, that was the early start into this sort of field, wasn't it, really? As you said, finding God and, and the church and the, and faith really started to help you to realize you wanted to help people. But, you know, that I know that was one of the things that, you know, you started to to kind of grow within as we started the Kids Code Pioneers. So, you know, share what your experience was like. Definitely. And I'll try and share a brief story, hopefully no more than two or three minutes about how I even got into Kids Company. So, you know, by the time this had happened, because as you say, it was around my university experience where I first found God. And because of my first encounter with God, I really did believe God can speak, lead and direct me in life. So I did the Finn Sandwich placement, which is two six-month placements instead of a one-year one. I'd already done my first one, and then I'd been serious about my faith. So when it came to finding my second placement, I felt God say to me personally, it was almost like a voice in my head, don't go for the placements the university is going to give you. Like, find your own one because it's going to be instrumental to your career. So this is something I heard within myself. And... We were supposed to have found a placement ready to start in January. Long story short, I actually found my kids' company placement in March. So I had the university phoning me saying, you need to do a placement or you're going to fail the placement period, etc. Everyone in my course had a placement and I didn't have a placement because of the voice I thought I'd heard. And I had to just keep saying to my university, I've got something lined up, you know, I'm just waiting to hear back from them. But, but there was essentially nothing lined up. I just thought, I can't say to them, God has told me, you know. Um, (laughs) So that was crazy. And then I was doing some voluntary work with the local yacht team in my area. And I remember just speaking to one of the gentlemen at the time that he told me about a company called Kids Company. And this would have been, this might have actually been in Jan. 
So I was supposed to be on my placement. You know, there wasn't one. So this might have been in Jan. So when he told me about Kids Company, I went home, researched it, and I fell in love. And I thought, this is exactly the place I'm supposed to be. So I kept on emailing them, emailing them. And what would happen is I'd email them, wait a week, email them on the same day. So every Monday for about six weeks, I would email them and just not hear anything back. And so I'd continue the emails, but then I ramped up to phone calls because I wanted to ask them if I could just volunteer and hopefully make that my placement. On a particular week, I remember again praying, thinking, I need a placement. I absolutely need a placement because obviously I don't want to fail my course. And, you know, I was like, God, I feel as though you said I shouldn't go for the university placements, but I'm not getting one. And I was on my knees praying. And then I heard, I might get the time wrong, but Monday, 11 or 12 o'clock, cool kids company. I just heard that in prayer. So I thought, okay, cool. And that was just my focus. And then let's say it was Monday, 11 o'clock. Monday, 11 o'clock, I called Kids Company and it was the same reception number that I'd called all the time, but someone else was on reception, as in a worker. So I don't know if it, maybe the receptionist gone toilet or something and someone was covering. So I called, I spoke to the worker and I explained everything. I said, look, I've been emailing since Jan. I'm more or less called all the time. Can I just speak to someone, please, who, who can tell me if I can volunteer or not? Then they passed me on to the Positive Experiences Department and Daniela Glasgow was the manager at the time. And that's how we got connected. And again, this is how my faith has really led me in my journey in terms of I really have felt guided and things like that. So once I got Kids Company, I already knew that was essentially going to be a building block for my career. I didn't know how. And that's where Mo and you, Darren, come in with Carlo and some of the now Mo trustees who really started the Pioneer Project. And yeah, that project was amazing because I loved the work I was doing with Kids Company. At that time, I was on an internship, so I wasn't an employee yet. But what that project did is it exposed me to the world of coaching. You know, we went away to Embercoom. I don't know what they call it, self-sustainable farm or something along those lines. And that was just an amazing experience. I'm not necessarily an outdoorsy person, but that was just a different outdoorsy experience. And it wasn't so much about being outdoor, but around the exercises and the teamwork and the self-awareness, how much we really learned about ourselves. And that was just a huge turning point for myself. I went along as a peer mentor, but I benefited as much as all the young people did. So that was just a great experience. And something that came out of that is we were all allocated the coach as well, which was great for me. But before we went to Embercoom, Daniela gave me my first ever coaching session. And that session for me changed my life essentially because I couldn't believe that someone had asked me questions and then the answers that had come up with had come out from me. I didn't know that stuff was in there. So that mixed with Embercoom um, and that experience really is what made me feel as though, yep, coaching's definitely something I'm going to do in my older life or, you know, as I get older. And then, yeah, within a couple of years, the Mo Foundation was started, Ministry of Entrepreneurship. And I just remember getting an email saying, would you like to be part of the coaching course? And that was just a total dream come true. And just an experience that changed the trajectory of my life because that was in 2012. And then the Pioneers Project when I was on the internship was maybe 2010, 2011. Yeah. And then I went back to uni, finished my degree. And then I actually got a job at Kids Company. And it's, it's crazy how things align. So the coach I got from the Embercoom experience, we always used to meet in cafes and places like that for our coaching sessions. Then on a particular day, she said, shall I see if we can find an office in Kids Company to meet? So I think she must have contacted Daniela and Daniela gave us an office space. And this is another God type story. By that time in my life, you know, I've always been developing skills and I've tried to be more organized with my life. So whenever I had a meeting, I would always aim to be there 15 minutes early. And again, I might get the timings wrong, let's say 11 and 12 o'clock. But let's say our meeting, my meeting with the coach was at 11 o'clock. For some reason, I thought it was 12 o'clock. But then the interesting thing that happened is, in my mind, I knew it was 12 o'clock and I checked the night before. And when I checked, I saw 12 o'clock. So I left my house to go to the meeting. And on my way to the station, I got a text from the coach to say, just so you know, I'm in the reception area. And, you know, I thought that's fine. And then as I was on the train, 
I was thinking, she texted me, let's say, 11.15. So she was 45 minutes. She texted me 45 minutes before our appointment. And only when I was on the train about to get off, I thought, why would she be there 45 minutes early? Like, could it be I've got the time wrong? And I had, I had got the time an hour wrong. So I, you know, came out the station very apologetic and I ran to the reception. And as I ran to the reception, Camilla was standing there, the CEO of Kids Company at the time. And as soon as I came in, she just turned around and said, you must be Jeffrey. Congratulations on getting a 2-1 in your psychology degree. And then she said, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm looking for a job. And she said, come and work with us. So for me, again, that was another sort of divine intervention in I got my first job because I was 45 minutes late for an appointment that I had checked trying to be 15 minutes early. And also, you know, that was the one and only time we chose to have the meeting there. So yeah, um, I was at Kids Company, had the job, and then I worked at Kids Company to 2015 when they actually shut down. And when they closed down, that was just a shocking experience for me because of how sudden it was. I remember going to work on Wednesday, I watched the six o'clock news, and that's how I found out I wasn't going to work on Thursday. We just didn't know. We actually had an all-staff meeting and we were told it's not shutting down. So all of a sudden I was just out of work. And I thought, what am I supposed to do with my life? Of course, I reverted back to prayer. And then I heard very clearly, go self-employed. Like, that's just what I heard in my spirit. And I thought, wow. Of course, you know, I did the maths. I kind of looked at my bank account, didn't have a lot of money in it at the time. But I thought, if I more or less don't do anything, you know, trying to spend as minimal money as possible, I can last six months. So I was like, okay, cool. See what happens. And then, yeah, this is me, basically, six to seven years later, fully self-employed. Yeah, amazing. And so let's talk through because as I know, you know, as we train up so many and you're now one of the lead master trainers on, you know, for Mo and sort of train the trainers as well. You know, there's a lot of people that will be probably at the same sort of crossroad. You know, they might be frustrated in their current professional life or coming out of academia or lost their way, but have got a sense that actually, you know, this might be a good career path for them. And what I love about your career path and your professional life and life really it's all integrated isn't it with you is that you've not followed the ordinary path you know you've followed your you know that inner calling that inner voice and you've also sought to help people that you know you experienced when you were growing up who as you said at the very beginning of this conversation you know some of them are lifers some of them are in and out of prison and I don't think that's ever fully left you there's a sense of actually these people deserve support. Yeah. Often, I think, with the prison service, as we know, with Mo, we support various different prison projects and absolutely, you know, share the same view as you that quite often people find themselves there. If they're not psychologically unwell, they find themselves there because life hasn't always given them the best opportunities and they've not made the right choices. And, you know, some people never get the opportunity to come back out in society, but those that do really deserve the best opportunity and it's not always there. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you've you've found a way to actually support people that are in those environments so why don't you talk about how that started to to come to fruition for you with sparks inside and and things like that yeah definitely so you know this will probably be a common theme but when I found God when God found me or when God called me it was then a question of purpose and I remember I went to an event and there was a pastor leading this event and he said if you want to know the purpose of something you have to ask his creator So if you want to know the purpose of a table or a plate, you have to ask its creator. So if you want to know your purpose, you have to ask your creator. And then I just remember getting that strong sense within me that there's so many people who have grown up in environments and who are just like me, who don't know that life can be any different for them. Because when I found Christ, I began to see the world differently. I didn't feel as though I would ever get a job. And as I said in the beginning, even earn up to something like 24K in a year. And then all of a sudden, I found myself in a position where I asked myself the question, what do you want to do with your life? Because I genuinely believed I could do anything. And then that's when I got the sense, actually, you need to help. Because there are a lot of people whom I've grown up with and you only see the outcome of things that have happened. But inside, they are really good people. Inside, they are just lost. They just don't know. They don't know that life's supposed to be another way. And I can really resonate with that. I had the belief system that everyone's been dealt cards in life. So you have to do the best of your hand. And I can't say where I got that from, apart from imagine believing that some options are just not available to you. 
And I thought, I, I need to tell people that options are available to them. So that's really where it started. And when I got with Kidsco, et cetera. Now, as I was with Kidsco, I was working with young people in gangs involved with knife crime, serious youth violence. And I was doing very well there, as in people's lives were changing. And I was just really seeing results. You know, the team I was in, it was a referral team. So people only come to our team through a specific referral and referrals would come and they would say, has Jeffrey got capacity? Because other people knew that I was having a real impact. And for me, I just said, I can see God is using me. Then the thought came, there just needs to be more. Not there needs to be more, but I felt as though there was more. I felt as though there was a, there was a higher calling. And then I just thought, where is the place where the most difficult and challenged people in society are? And for me, that was in prison. So I felt a calling to go to prisons. And then that same girl that I told you about in the beginning, she, <laughs> this is weird now, because then she once said to me, her mum had a dream about me and I was speaking to people in prisons and I've never met her mum, etc. So she just said her mum was asking about one of her friends and described it. And then it's like her mum described me and said she saw me speaking to people in prisons. But I hadn't told this girl that I felt God had called me to prisons. So I just thought that was a confirmation. So then I thought, okay, cool. I know I've been called to go into prisons, but I didn't know how. So when I was working in the community, I could use my own life story as relatability to the young people I was working with. But I thought if I go to the prison, I haven't been to prison myself. So some of them may say, well, you can't relate to me. And that's where coaching comes in the picture. Because as soon as I experienced that first coaching session from Daniela, I knew that is what I needed to work within prisons because it wasn't about me, it wasn't about relatability, but I had a skill and a tool to help people learn about themselves. And through the process of coaching, that's what would enable them to see that things can be different. So I became a coach thanks to Mo. And that was in 2012. Then in 2013, I found out about Spark Inside who were essentially hiring professional coaches to work in prisons. And that was absolutely amazing because one of my goals for the MO course was to become a coach so I could work in prisons. And I was just going to do it off my own. I actually did start doing it off my own back. And I was just volunteering for an organization and coaching people. Then Spark Inside came up as an organization that would actually pay to do that. So of course I applied, I got through and I'm still with them now. I'm one of their head coaches. And it's just been, yeah, it's just been amazing work ever since. Uh, amazing. And I think the um, self-employed entrepreneurial journey, I think it's important to share because it's not without its challenges, is it? I mean, mm. the thing about you, Jeffrey, that I've always, there's lots of things I admire about you, but your work ethic you know, you hustle, you work at it. <laughs> You've done so many different things to kind of put bread on the table and to make sure that your life is sustainable from a financial perspective. So, you know, Spark Inside was one of those, but I know you've worked in a referral system as well, which is, you know, when people come out of prison, yeah. you know, they go into that. You've worked in there as well. You know, so you've tried and done lots of different things. So what are some of those experiences? Because I think it's interesting for people to hear about that because, it's not a straight path. It's not like I'm here and I want to go here. Yeah. It's like it's a kind of a jagged path. Yeah. Imagine a mountain range. It's ups and downs, isn't it? And I think it's important to kind of share some of those ups and downs and some of those challenges. But the thing about you is you've always been willing just to get on with it, haven't you? You've not sat back on your laurels. I think you've really gone and worked. That's the thing, Darren. And, you know, it's actually probably difficult for me to speak about some of the challenges because for me, there was no other option. So what I mean by that is I felt a strong calling to do particular work, like a calling from God. So that was going to happen irrespective. I just needed to know how it was going to happen. And then at the same time, I wanted to be able to live life. So what that essentially meant is when Kids Company closed down, like I said, I heard God say to me, go self-employed. And for six months, I was sustainable and I found work. And it was the most interesting six months, probably not the most interesting, but it was a very interesting six months of my life because I did absolutely nothing in the sense where I didn't have a website. I didn't like know about networking and business. I didn't reach out to anyone, but I just was offered work, like self-employed work, training and coaching for a period of six months. And I thought, 
God's literally provided me with opportunities. But then I also thought, you know, can I live like this? Surely I'm supposed to do something. So what I did is I looked for work which aligned to where I felt I'd been called. And then that's what you mentioned in terms of the approved premises. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this at the time, but I initially applied for a zero hour contract because they're 24 hour hostels, essentially. And for anyone who doesn't know, an approved premises is a hostel for high risk offenders. So there's people who have been in prison for a long time or they're deemed the risk to the public. So there's a transition period between prison and the community, and that's called an approved premises, where they're no longer in prison, they come out into the community, but they're in a 24-hour hostel. What that means is it's monitored by staff for 24 hours, and they're there for a period of time where they can still go out into the community, but for example, they've got curfews, they're drug tested, they're also supported to go on their feet. So essentially they don't just reoffend. And I applied for a zero hour contract, which basically means I would cover shifts. And that was a really good job because they really needed a lot of cover. So that was helping me on the side whilst I did what I felt I'd been, you know, sort of led by God to be self-employed. And then a position came up. But now I knew that in those 24-hour hostels, if you work full-time, that translates to like three days a week because a 36-hour contract would be full-time, but you do 12-hour shifts. Mm -hmm. So I applied for a position, which meant I would work three out of seven days because it's 24 hours, seven days. And that's how I began a sustainable lifestyle because that was not paying me let's say a lot of money but enough to enough to live get by and and live life essentially and that enabled me to build my business and my coaching and my training business on the side and really get the experience and I just really built it from there yeah so what year is it that you finished that role then and really went full out with your sort of portfolio career then 2019 2019 right so just pre-pandemic beginning you know the joy of that yeah so if we come up to date now what does jeffrey's sort of workbook if you like look like now what's what's your portfolio looking like now yeah it's a vast one (laughs) it's a vast one but essentially i'm i'm with spark inside so i i call that um my my life coaching. I've also done some career coaching certifications and and I'm an associate for a charity called Young Women's Trust where I support young women between the ages of 18 to 13 who are underrepresented really around career and confidence. There's a bit of life and career coaching. And then um, the rest of my coaching would be executive or leadership. So um, I'm with an organization called Frontline Mm -hmm. as an associate. And um, I work with essentially three groups of leadership. So let's say junior, middle and senior management. And that's come along quite fast. And then there's some other associate work that I do, which is just really working with people in management positions. Linked to my coaching, I'm also a trainer. And of course, I'm I'm a master coach trainer for Mo, which means I'm a lead trainer and I also train trainers for Mo. And then I would say my my three specialist areas are coach training, let's say conflict resolution, assertiveness, difficult conversations. I kind of bunch them into one. And that comes from a lot of my background um, with high risk young people, high risk offenders, people in prison. Plus, um, I'm a certified mediator. So that's that background. And then one of my other areas, specialist areas, is equity, diversity and inclusion. And yeah, so those are sort of the high levels and then it, it branches branches out um, even further than that. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to watch you um, sort of navigate and actually be called forth, really. People see you as a leader in the market and somebody that's, um, you know, really representing, you know, diversity and, and difference, which is, I think, is so essential. And I think, you know, we I mentioned just a minute ago, obviously, then sort of COVID has come along and, and has... Um, been a bit of a game changer for some and, and been very challenging challenging for most people. I think everyone's had different trials with it. But I know during during that period, obviously then Black Lives Matter, obviously, mm. you know, what happened in America um, had an impact across the globe, really, well, especially in the UK. So, and I know that you've, you've really embraced that and you've really engaged with that using your own personal experiences and your life experiences. So why don't you talk about that? Talk about some of the conversations that you've been party to or 
how people are asking you to come and support what is quite a challenging conversation for a lot mm. of people because there's a lot of unconscious bias. Um, there's a lot of us that are not even aware of the fact of some of these challenges and we've not had those experiences. So what, what, you know, what are some of the support that you've offered or some of the conversations that you've been party to? Yeah. So before the death of George Floyd, I was involved in a, in a global project for an American client. So, I mean, they're a huge client in terms of they're in six continents and um, 38 different bases. And that's where I got into the equity, uh, diversity and inclusion work with a group of other, other facilitators. And then George Floyd happened. And what I saw in society was just shocking to me personally, you know, particularly on social media. And how I interpreted it is black and white people just against each other mm. on social media. And I thought, we're in 2020, what is going on? And nobody's listening. Nobody's necessarily even dialoguing. They're just giving their points in a very nasty way. And I thought, this is, this is terrible. So I just wanted to do something about it. And of course, Mo, um, Mo now stands for me, others and everyone. And I've always seen Mo as a, as a platform to express yourself, to expand. And I know Mo's not afraid to try things. So even though I was a little bit nervous, I put through in the WhatsApp group because we were doing Mo Community Connects at the time. Mm. And that was just, you know, the pandemic was fresh at the time and we wanted to really support our community and just check on well-being. So we would just host conversations where, which you started, Aaron, where people could just talk about how they're feeling and maybe have a bit of fun and stuff. And I thought, what if I did a Mo Community Connect on race and speaking about race and... You know, I put it through in the group and more or less everyone was for it, you know, showed their support. So I thought, okay, yeah, let's go for it. And I remember about 50 people registered. And I was very nervous because I had no idea what was going to happen. But I just thought, I'm a facilitator, you know, I'm a mediator. Hopefully I can manage it, but it's online, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. And it was just nothing of the sort. It was, for me, the first of many rich conversations that have happened since. And essentially I felt is it provided the space for people to share their experiences, for people to learn. And what I really wanted was for people to get a better understanding of race and issues relating to race and regarding to race and just try to collaborate and come together rather than, you know, become polarized in opinions and views. And that's exactly what happened. And yeah, as a result of that, um, it then gave me the confidence where there was another organization that said, you know, they were looking for something around supporting people with race. And, you know, the MOL course was amazing. Um, lots of positive comments came out on LinkedIn, etc. So I, I kind of compiled all of that into evidence, essentially. And I said, look, this is something that I did for another organization. How would you feel? And they just absolutely loved it and hadn't heard of anything like that before. And it, it wasn't training, it was facilitating the conversation. So they said, can I do it for their cohort of coaches? That went down really well. Then they asked me, can you start providing some workshops and training on this? And then it's just really, really, really grown from there. And of course, you know, I've done it to some organizations, then one person there may recommend me to someone else or, and it's just, it's just really blown up from there. And now it's just a mixture of things. It's not so much the conversations now. It's a lot of, um, let's say, workshops and training based on organisational need. But I still include the element of conversation and, and drawing people in. And it's been amazing because if I hadn't done it, I would have never believed that you can facilitate a conversation with 100 plus people. And online works amazing for that because I don't think that would work face to face. But, you know, we have people using the chat. We have people coming off, un, you know, unmuting and speaking. And everyone's just really learning in such a respectful space. And that's really just increased my love of humanity. <laughs> because, you know, people care. So many people care. And people learn, you know, when colleagues feel brave enough to share some of their experiences. Other colleagues say, but I've known you forever. I didn't know that you go through that. Or I didn't know it was like that in our workplace. And it, it just provides, um, yeah, just, just an amazing safe space, a brave space. And it begins to shift the culture and understanding. And, you know, something that a lot of people are scared to talk about. So one of the things I, I really set the scene before, and I try to get rid of the fear and also say you don't have to be perfect. You know, there's there's no 
right answer as such. Let's accept people where they're at and move forward together because the fear basically doesn't help people move forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I, I, you know, I think my experience, I think you've facilitated, facilitated the conversation for Mo and I'm sure the ones that you've gone on to facilitate, you've done uh, an exceptional job as well. But I think it's that importance of, you know, that open space of, of really listening and being silent to really listen to people's experiences. Mm. Um, even if it's not easy to hear, you know, from, from a white person's perspective, if you like, I don't necessarily identify, well, I do identify that way, but I, I never thought about it that way. You know, I've always looked at life as we're human beings, mm. you know, I, you know, colorblind in that sense. And, and hopefully that's manifested in, in a positive sense through Mo with the ridiculous diversity that we've got and that inclusiveness that we've got, um, you know, within Mo Foundation. And, and, but that importance for silence and listening and to hear people's experiences in a really deeply respectful and loving way, I think is, is a really essential part of that. And do you see, you know, are you seeing that shift? Obviously, you know, with what happened with George Floyd, which was terrible, it was awful. Uh, but it's not just George Floyd, as we know, it happens yeah, very yeah. often yeah. in the US. Uh, and, and even in, in the UK, we know, you know, there's those challenges. But are you seeing it shift? Um, not in society, if you want, but also in corporations that you're starting to work in now. Are you seeing that there's more openness now and, and really listening to understand? My answer is 100% is shifting. Um, 100% is shifting. You know, when I speak to the people who commission the work, you hear their heart in a way that you may not have heard before. You hear that they really care and they're passionate. Um, you know, I've been involved in focus groups and organisations are putting their money where their mouth is. You know, they're investing in it. Um, they're investing in budgets for training and particular programs and, you know, reverse mentoring, just organisations, 100% there's a shift. I think, you know, for, for any listeners, one of the things I would say is it's about a cultural shift and culture takes time to set. So the, the shift in culture will also take time. You know, it's not that these interventions are happening and it's going to be different tomorrow. It just cannot work that way. It doesn't work that way. But compare last year to this year and this year to next year. And I think people will be able to say, I've seen notable changes. And then if you look in five years time, yeah, of course there'll be shifts. And you know, things take time, but I've been very happy in the spaces I've been in. Of course, I haven't been in every space. And in some of the focus groups I've been in, I've been aware of organizations trying to make a shift and then they're kind of evaluating it and not necessarily pleased with the results they're getting but they don't stop, they still continue. And that's why it's just worth knowing that actually it takes time, but the interventions are what, what are happening, what is happening now, and that's what's most important. Mm -hmm. And then sort of taking a step back and, and sort of looking, you know, it's, it's the beginning of 2022, it's January when we're recording this. So, you know, what does the, you know, what does the next three, four, five years look like for you? What are some of the things that you're some of the adventures you're hoping for in your life and experiences that you're hoping to create in your life? Oh, gosh. So that's an interesting one. And I've come to the place, Darren, I don't have three, four, five-year goals. It's just never worked for me. And essentially, I will always follow and, you know, be guided by where I feel God is leading me. So, you know, I've, I've tried to have the big goals and then essentially better opportunities come up. So my goals have never been good enough or great enough, which is always a nice surprise. So how I work is what's the next step, essentially. <laughs> and where I really feel led just in my career is um, it's really around team coaching. So I'm doing, as I said, lots of, um, of course, lots of one-to-one -one coaching and I wanted to move into leadership. So one of the times we would have spoken, I would have said, you know, I wanted to move into leadership and really happy I've got um, some, some great contracts working with senior leaders now. And I'm just really enjoying that work. Mm. And, you know, the, the reason I wanted to do that was to have influence at that level that it ripples down. So now it's team coaching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's great because I've already started that as well. And one of the things I'm going to do is just make an investment into my training and upskill differently for the team coaching because I'm anticipating more and greater opportunities coming up. So, yeah, the next step for me is team coaching to to see where that that lands wonderful yeah you know, and you'll you'll um 
you know, you'll do fabulously in that because because of the skill sets that you've developed, you know, and uh, the thing with team coaching is it's it's taking that sort of whole systems perspective. Um, and I, I'm similar to you, you know, for me, it's not about goals. It is about life experiences mm. and, um, you know, what, what are the life experiences that you want to create in your life? Um, I think that's quite important for people because goals can seem a bit static for me. Whereas if I think about experiences I want in life, like I want to be stood on a beach somewhere and experiencing <laughs> that or whatever it is, you know, I think it's a nicer, a sort of a, a richer, imaginative sort of journey in your own mind before you kind of make manifest in the world. Yeah, and let me just let me just say on that point because imagine imagine a coach who doesn't believe in goals. Uh, that's not me. But one, one thing I will say is my goals tend to be sort of yearly one year goals what's what's my goal for the year and then yeah yeah well i mean i i don't i you know don't as a coach i don't mind if people don't believe in goals it doesn't matter i mean that's the beauty of the, the where coaching has got to in the last 20 25 years is the beauty of coaching is there's so many different spaces now mm. and there's so much diversity and different niches in the coaching profession it's just incredible you know it it blows my mind watching how various different people use the kind of core philosophy, if you like, of coaching and the core skills to then manifest all sorts of different uh, ways to bring that to life yeah. and create yeah. rich experiences for people, you know, and uh, enriching conversations. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not certainly a zealot, a zealot that believes that you have to be goal-focused as a coach, certainly not, even though we use the GROW model. Um, you know, I think there's various different ways to kind of approach it. You know, the thing is about you, Jeffrey, is, you know, you talk about that inner voice and that, you know, God's voice. You're very intuitive. You know, you're very intuitive in the way that you kind of follow your path. You know the sort of direction you want to go in and you intuit and you keep moving, which is, I think is, you know, is an incredible way to do it. And, and a, you know, good luck to you with that. I mean, it, it works. You do, you've, you know, we, we, we can see in the last 10 years what you've created and how you're creating support and contribution in the world. Um, before we close it, I mean, because, you know, as at the very beginning, I said, um, you know, you've been an instrumental and are an instrumental part of, the Mo journey and the Mo experience. So, you know, for me, Mo is, is a, uh, you know, it's the work of lots of different people, the trustees, the community, the Mo HQ team that you're part of. Um, the beauty of Mo is that it's, it's not down to one person or, mm. or one set of individuals. It really is a, a community. We're 10 years old this year at the end of this month, January. So this will be February yeah. comes out. Yeah. Which is just Amazing. unbelievable really. Um, you know, what are some of your hopes, dreams, wishes for the Mo community or what are some of the messages you'd like to share with them? Yeah. Oh, man. Mo has so much to offer. That's all I can say. Um, Mo has so, so, so much to offer. And I think one of the things I'd love for the Mo community, 2020 and moving forward, is um, is people just really get plugged in. You know, um, Mo has lots to offer you know lots of support to um offer people who need it and also we can receive we're 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 open to receiving and open to people's time and contribution so mo's really around collaboration and yeah i've been a huge beneficiary of mo just just being a part of the community um and my work as a as a growth director and some of the projects i've been involved in mo's been instrumental and life-changing not just for me but for so many other people and some of the some of the things we do, such as movement conference, giving people a platform, the Dream Factory, of course, our flagship coaching course, and just the others, the mental health first aid. We do action learning now. You know, it's it's endless. Mo is, um, yeah, I suppose it's a community like no other. Um, certainly one that I'm not aware of. So I would really encourage people to get plugged into Mo and to reach out um, to see to see how they can get plugged in. No, thanks, Jeffrey. Yeah, no. Um, wonderful. And so for people that would love to connect with you, where where can fit people find you hanging out in the world of social? <laughs> yeah, you find me on LinkedIn. So yeah, nice and simple. Jeffrey Wotherspoon, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. Fantastic. And I know you um, um, sort of latter part of last year, you launched your new website, haven't yeah, you, as well? So yeah, that's, yeah. that's out there, isn't it? So people can kind of check out your portfolio and the various different things that you offer. Definitely. Um, fantastic, Jeffrey. Look, it's been so wonderful to talk to you today and to sort of find out some things that I didn't know, you know, about, you know, your personal background. You know, it's really great as as Mo, um, as you know, because you were part of designing that as it went more virtual in 2020 and 2021, um, um, which has been 
fantastic for Mo because it means it's become more and more international. Africa is, you know, we're really pushing into Africa and, um, you know, seeking to support people in, in that that um, continent, which is incredible. So maybe we'll start getting start getting some Ghanaians joining. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We probably already have, beyond yourself. But yeah, I mean, yeah, actually, yeah. people that are in the country, you know, it'd be amazing if we could support there as well. Of course. So, um, look, Jeffrey, it's been wonderful. Thanks for your time. Is there any final thoughts or final messages you want to share? Ah, oh, should have prepared this, shouldn't I? Listen, I just want to say thank you, Darren, actually. You know, um, this is a thought that's popped into my head. I remember um, shortly after the, the Mo course when I, I didn't, you know, have a network, didn't really understand the concepts of networking. You were my first network. And, you know, someone I say was like my first mentor. And I remember we... Um, we went to a place in London Bridge and we did the vision board. Mm. And yeah, I didn't even know what a vision board was at the time and stuff like that. But I remember just speaking to so many of my friends saying, yeah, I just did a, I just did a vision board, you know? <laughs> and my future is going to be bright. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, I just want to say thank you, Darren, for all the support uh, thus far. Yeah, well, likewise, Jeffrey. I mean, I, I love working with you and love co-creating this community with you and, and all the other people that are part of it. Um, you know, that's the thing that we're all, you know, we're all very proud of. And uh, hopefully at some point we'll get to celebrate together. Um, I don't think that's going to be in January, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll wait until this this latest COVID mm. phase passes and maybe in the summer or maybe at the movement conference, which we're hoping to put on in 2022, we'll get to actually um, maybe have a beer and just celebrate the last 10 years. Um, but Jeffrey, thanks very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful to hear more about your life story and to, to kind of some of the gifts and insights that you've you've um, you've developed over the last ten years or so. Thank you, Darren. Appreciate it.